As we're gathered together this morning in the name of the triune God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, I hope that you are reminded not to take this for granted. Here, the local church is gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, knit together by Christ in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This same day, countless believers in Jesus Christ across the globe are doing what you are doing, one body in Christ. I hope that you don't take it for granted that you get to be in Christ and serve Christ with his body. I hope that you don't take it for granted that God has said of himself, I have given you this book, the Bible, to reveal myself to you so that you can know me, so that you can know why you were created, so that you can know what you're supposed to be about so that you can know that I gave my son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and to rise again, that he is seated on high, and that by faith in him, you can belong to me. You can be my child now and forever. I sure hope that you're not gathered here this morning taking that for granted. What an unbelievable thing it is to belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ and to have his spirit and to be given his word to know him. Let's pray for God to help us know him better this morning. Father, because of our faith in Jesus Christ and the spirit you have given us, we do love you. We want to love you more. Show us more of yourself. Teach us more so that we will be comforted and convicted and motivated that we are supposed to be about you and your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We are in our sequential exposition of the second half of Luke's two-part series, Luke and Acts, and we find ourselves in the place in Acts where Christ has just transformed the primary persecutor of the church into a zealous proponent of the gospel. Right after the episode of Saul's conversion and commissioning, we studied that last week, that was Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19a. Now we get to observe what happens when Saul switches sides, 19b to 31. We observe a dramatic change in Saul and how the Jews react to his bold gospel preaching right out of the gate. And the church in Jerusalem's response to this turn of events when Saul travels there. And then the overall blessing to the church that God has changed Saul from a zealous opponent to a zealous proponent. The blessing to the church to make Saul, to change him from an enemy to a teammate. Let's read together, beginning in verse 19b. 
For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc or who laid waste to the church in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took, took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for, did, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and then how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Same song, second verse. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What happens when God changes a zealous persecutor of Jesus and makes him a bold proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus? So we're going to look at the dramatic change in Saul first. And then what happens when that former persecutor wants to join the disciples in Jerusalem, whom he previously terrorized? How does the church respond to the transformation of Jesus Christ in someone? And what is the overall beneficial impact on the church since God turned the zealous opponent into a teammate? In fact, if we, if we put the pieces together in the flow, it might be verse 31 that kind of ties it all together. What has God done on behalf of the church by taking the zealous persecutor and making him a teammate? They're given this time of peace and growth without Saul hounding them. What a blessing for the advancement of the gospel because... Christ changed Saul. Unless we should think this is academic and not about our own relationship to God, what difference should it make to us what happened to Saul after his conversion and commission? Well, what does it matter to you if your faith is genuine and the Spirit's work is evident in your obedience? If we have faith in God, we will obey him. Should we care that persecution against us only confirms that we belong to Christ? Shouldn't you be comforted that God will preserve his people in safety if it is not yet their time to go home to be with him? Doesn't it matter that God has placed you in the body of Christ and given you teammates to include you and to encourage you? 
Doesn't it matter for your comfort and courage and growth that Christ is spreading and building his church in times of peace or in times of persecution because he will be glorified and you get to be a part of that. So let's look first at verses 19 to 25, what dramatic change looks like when Saul committed his life to Christ because Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? (laughs) And Saul came to know the Lord whom he had been persecuting. But everything in Saul's life now changes. His occupation, his decisions, his message, his movements, everything is different. If we have really been given spiritual life and turned from sin and self to faith in Jesus, shouldn't there be a change in our lives? The change in Saul is dramatic, so dramatic that it's hard for people to believe at first, and so dramatic that those who would have been his former comrades now want to kill him. And the the first place this, this happens in our text is in Damascus. Damascus is the chief city in Syria. Evidently, there were a number of Jewish synagogues there. You can look back at verse 2 to be reminded of that, that even when Saul was taking letters to Damascus, it was for the synagogue. So there are Jewish synagogues in this chief city of Syria, and evidently there were also already some Jewish converts following Christ in this city, such as Ananias. But it's, it's evident that there was still much work to be done. Saul's previously misguided zeal has now been corrected and redirected by Christ. And so he wastes no time. The text tells us without delay or hesitation, no intervening time. Immediately, he is heralding Jesus in the synagogues, heralding. In particular, he's proclaiming, the text tells us in verse 20, he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a particularly Pauline thing to do, we're going to discover about the Apostle Paul. Luke, this, this sounds more like Paul than it does Luke. So here Luke is saying exactly what Paul would say. This becomes a mark of Pauline theology that Jesus is the Son of God. And because we know what Paul teaches, we know that this carries weight in two different ways. In, in the thrust of, biblical, of the, uh, the biblical storyline, but also in Paul's own teaching. By the way, this is uh, free information uh, for your, your Bible study, for your edification. The reason you hear me use Paul's name interchangeably with Saul all the time is not because at this point in the text, Saul's name was converted from Saul to Paul. No, Saul's, Saul's Hebrew name and Saul's Roman name, so Saul and Paul. And later in, a little bit later in Acts, they just start referring to him as Paul because he's primarily a missionary to the Gentiles. Okay, that's just free information. So you can, we can stop accidentally talking about, you know the time that Paul's, Saul's name was changed from Saul to Paul? Because that's not accurate. Okay, so the two different ways that Saul's theology is evident in using the term proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, first of all, the Son of God is messianic fulfillment of a perfect and idealized future son from an Old Testament perspective who would be the consummate king for God's people. Israel in the Old Testament is called God's son. 
even though they proved to be a rebellious one. And then God, God preserved Israel for his own glory and purposes. But then also the king of Israel could be called God's son, but in a limited way that always pointed forward to a better king and better kingdom. So this is a fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of a perfect and idealized future son who would become the consummate king for God's people. And then secondly, and this is probably the, the thing that, that we need to point out here about Paul's theology, is the unique divinity of this son. The one whom God sent as ultimate deliverer and whom he raised from the dead to prove his divine place and power. Paul would later make this theology abundantly clear in his letters, the divinity as well as the humanity of Jesus. Here are just a couple of brief examples. In Romans 8, chapter 3, Paul will say it like this, For God has done what the law, weakened in the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So you see this juxtaposition on purpose of God, the divine son, being sent in human flesh, but to be perfect in the flesh, okay? And then Galatians 4.4 is another example. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. The divine son, born of a woman, born under law. You can also read, you can write this down in your notes. You can read this, the same ideas in Romans 1, 1 through 4. You can read it in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. These are other clear examples that Paul believed Jesus to be God in the flesh, Messiah and Lord, who willingly gave his life to pay for sin and offer us forgiveness and who rose from the grave and is exalted on high to conclusively prove his position and his power and authority and his ability to mediate a right relationship to God, himself both God and perfect man. Now, what's the reaction that we see in verse 21? Kind of a priceless reaction in chapter 9, verse 21. Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? And really, it's an understandable reaction. Who is this guy? So even though the first reaction was amazement that this Saul was the same one who had been persecuting Jesus' followers. The seriousness of Saul's turnabout begins to settle in, we see in verse 22. The text tells us that Saul is increasing in strength, and this isn't from Saul taking roids and pumping iron. No, it's abundantly clear that this new faith in Christ and gifting in the spirit is growing exponentially in this man who has already, he, he already is full of scriptural knowledge, now discovering the true meaning with spiritual sight. That's the strengthening that's happening in him. And as I'll explain more in just a minute, this, this doesn't all happen overnight, but it is clear that the Holy Spirit is now wielding Saul as Saul wields the word. The Jews in Damascus are bewildered. They're confounded by the strength of Saul's argumentation and reasoning. 
that Jesus is indeed the Christ. I mean, it's no wonder, right? Saul undoubtedly has so much to grow before he can craft the doctrinal treatises under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we have recorded in God's word. However, he's already trained in the best Jewish education concerning scripture and spiritual teaching. And you get the idea that he's no intellectual slouch. Steer this zeal and learning in the right direction, and you have a potent weapon for Christ. Some of us may wonder how our past training and experiences can be used for the cause of Christ. But we really ought to be praying and seeking opportunities to let God use our history for his own purposes. Sometimes it's sin that we regret, and we don't know how God can use that past to help other people. But what if you can encourage those who struggle with similar kinds of things? What if you know that you wasted so many years loving money instead of loving God, and you wonder, how can God use that to help other people? And you've, by the grace of God, he has refocused your heart and your life, and you pray, Father, help me know how to use this for the blessing of your people so that your gospel is advanced. In your own life, you can think of other examples. Now, when the author tells us in verse 23 of the negative reaction from the leadership in Damascus, he mentions also that many days passed. In Paul's own references to this time period in his letters, namely, this happens, you can write this down too, this is, this, these cross-references are from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, and then also 2 Corinthians 11, 32, and 33. So the main one is Galatians 1, 11 to 24, but then also 2 Corinthians 11, 32, and 33 cover this same time period in Saul's life. So we learn from that some additional details. Here's a map of um, this time period in Saul's life. Now, we're going to zoom in a little bit closer to a specific portion of that map so that you can be reminded that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. That's number one on the map. If I were making the map, this is a little picky, but if I were making the map, I would switch numbers one and four in terms of their location because he was getting close to Damascus when he was converted. So that doesn't really matter. But he's on his way to Damascus, and Jesus meets him, okay? Jesus introduces himself. And then after his, in, his interaction with Ananias and following these earliest days of proclamation that we've been talking about, Galatians 1.17 tells us that at this point, he spent some time in Arabia. So on the map, that would be numbers one and two. He goes west, spends some time in Arabia and returns again, probably witnessing to others in the region concerning Christ. So it seems that we now pick up in our text there again back in Damascus and that the Jewish leaders are plotting to kill him. And even the provincial governor is involved in this plot, the governor under King Aretas, according to 2 Corinthians 11. So especially if Paul has been involved in making a stir in the entire region, you can see why not only the Jews are upset, but even the provincial governor gets involved. This whole period from his conversion and before going back to Jerusalem covers at least 
overlapping portions of three years, according to Galatians 1.18. So this many days is longer than it might seem at first. Now, the reason Luke doesn't give these additional details is almost certainly because it doesn't serve his purpose. His goal in this part of Acts is to show the Spirit's work to spread and grow Christ's church and to highlight major players and major events. Remember, we've seen Stephen, Philip, Peter, and now Saul. We'll see Peter again before we come back to Saul. So it's major events, major people in the life of the Spirit spreading the church in these days. This is a summary of the major events in the early days of Saul's conversion, including his being active and effective in gospel proclamation, leading to opposition and persecution, and then the transition to being accepted as a fellow believer, and the positive impact on the church to have a period of peace with their chief persecutor having become a teammate. So back in verses 24 and 25, there's a plot afoot to kill Saul. And since Damascus is a walled city, the gates would be the only passage in and out. But with the gates being closely watched and guarded on the lookout for Saul, his disciples come up with another escape route. The fact that Saul has disciples, students who follow a teacher, is yet another indication that some time has passed, and it also speaks to his impact in these early days. They let him out, the text says, through the wall, whether that's a high window or some other opening. You, you remember examples of this in the Old Testament where David escaped out a window and uh, the, the spies escaped out a window with Rahab's help and things like that only here. So they used a rope in these escapes. All of these use a rope. What's unique about Saul's escape here is that they, were, they lowered him in a, down in a basket. Apparently, Saul left both his repelling gloves and his man card at home. <laughs> Actually, the likely explanation could be that this was the safest and least conspicuous method, since it also took place at night under the cover of darkness. Perhaps the large hamper itself was dark in color. But twice in this section about the new Saul, both here and in Jerusalem, God provides a means of escape from persecution through the help of his people. This is one indication that on some occasions, Christians didn't wait to be martyred, but moved on to preach another day. They lived to fight another day. Now, the second movement in our passage involves how the church responds when sinners are converted to fellow believers, verses 26 to 30. Saul, having been a believer for some time now, but not known to the church in Jerusalem, makes his way there. And what should be natural for those who claim Christ, Saul wants to join the disciples in Jerusalem, to attach himself, to be united with them. That's the natural thing for believers. But they're scared, afraid, apprehensive. And who can blame them here in Jerusalem for their reticence after he had been such a zealous persecutor, the chief persecutor? But praise the Lord for Barnabas, the generous, kind, and cooperative spirit of this son of encouragement. What happens in the text isn't to say that Barnabas is gullible and imprudent, 
but he is quick to believe the truthfulness of Saul's tale of his conversion. And he is quick to see the fruit of his zeal for proclaiming Christ. The way to quiet the fears of the church in Jerusalem is to get the support of the apostles. So he brings Saul with him, and he explains both his conversion and the resulting change and passion for ministry in the name of Jesus. We find out a couple of things here again from Paul's own parallel account of of what's taking place here in his letter to the Galatians. There he tells us that the only apostles he got to know well at this period or the only apostle he got to know well was Peter over a period of 15 days, and then only James, the brother of Jesus, to a much lesser degree in Galatians 1. So that makes it very likely here that in Acts 9.27, Peter is the representative of the apostles to whom Barnabas brings Saul, which makes sense. This effort from Barnabas, though, results in two things for Saul in Jerusalem in verse 28. Apparently, upon Peter's confirmation, Saul is accepted among the believers, and he's able to go in and out among them. And then secondly, just as he had done in Damascus, Saul launches into ministry, and here we have a Greek word that means he spoke out freely and boldly in the name of the Lord. Preaching boldly, same word in verse 27 and 28. Such bold preaching becomes a mark of Paul's ministry, but it's not something that even he presumes upon without dependence on God. He will ask the Ephesian church to pray that the Spirit of God will give him clarity and boldness in his gospel proclamation, Ephesians 6, 18, and 19. Even the Apostle Paul does not presume his own ability to proclaim clearly and boldly. No, he depends on God. So at verse 29, we have the same song as we said, second verse, only this time Saul is debating the Hellenists. Do you remember these Hellenists? They're the Greek-speaking Jews. These wouldn't be the ones who have come to faith in Christ, but they would be the same kind who opposed Stephen. Although some time has passed while Paul was absent in Damascus and Arabia, you can imagine how this would have enraged them with hatred for Saul. Now that he has turned from being so vigorously on their side to now being one of these Jesus followers and a bold and capable one to boot. You guys know that I'm a Warriors fan. And uh, I, in fact, the only reason I follow the NBA at all is because Stephen Curry blows my mind. And so I track the NBA just a little bit. And one of the most fun things to track about the NBA is the drama with the players and the organizations. Kevin Durant is at the top of the drama list, and he has switched teams three times. And each time, the team that loses Kevin Durant is like, traitor, coward. And the team that gains Kevin Durant is like, hallelujah. We probably just got the best scorer of all time. Nobody pushes the rock like this guy. But if you're on the other team, you just hate Kevin Durant. These guys can't stand Saul now because he's switched sides. And then also similar to Stephen, not Stephen, Stephen, 
and Saul's own experience in Damascus, they can't contend with the apologetic work of the Spirit through this guy. So they desire to silence him by stopping his breathing permanently. The Christian brethren, again, learn of this desire. And here's another map. And they, they bring him down, the same map, actually. You'll see they bring him down. Again, we always say down because Jerusalem's higher. They bring him down to um, Caesarea, to the Mediterranean port city of Caesarea, and they put him on a ship to his hometown of Tarsus. Now, just so that you have this in your mind about Tarsus and the time frame, the context of what's happening in um, Acts, because we've had a lot of things happening in Acts in sort of within the first year of Christ uh, being resurrected and ascending. We've had a lot of things happening. Now we just have this period of three years, and now the the, the spans of time are going to spread out more for a little while here. So according to, to Galatians 2.1, this period, while Saul is in the region of Tarsus, it's, uh, lasts, this period lasts for the better part of 14 years, where he undoubtedly continued to reshape all of his former learning in the Scripture to now be submissive to Christ, to understand and defend its relationship to Christ. Remember, for someone who will become the premier missionary and church planter around much of the Mediterranean, and his teaching and his letters becoming the central pillar of sound new covenant doctrine. He would need greater maturity and clarity to himself be equipped to disciple and establish other elders. So too, Paul likely continued in, in mostly peaceful ministry in that region. And it's that note of peace which I believe is the key to our understanding of the way that the author concludes this section with another one of his patented summary statements. Verse 31, what God is doing for and through his church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. God gives the church peace and growth during this season. Here is another instance that the New Testament word church, ecclesia, assembly, community, can refer not only to a local congregation like ours in a particular locale, but also to the totality of the congregation of God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. And in this context, this period of peace is connected directly to the amazing transformation God did when Christ confronted Saul and changed him from enemy to teammate. Also in this context in Acts, we see that there will be periods of peace and there will be periods of persecution. God is sovereign over them all. And God still grows his church. We might do well to remember that the peace we enjoy is likely temporary. Not enjoyed by the church everywhere. And that God is caring for and growing his church in both circumstances. We should pray for the persecuted church and offer as much support as we can to the persecuted church. So too, even as we're trying to light a fire under the comfy church, that's us, the affluent church, 
we might do well to remember that such blessing from God has produced multiplication of gospel efforts around the world. We should be grateful for the peace that God has given in much of the Western church. How many missionaries has God sent out from his church? What a rich blessing. So we can balance that with our desire to light a fire under the comfy church, and sometimes we're kind of bashing us, aren't we? Because there's a lot of nonsense in the so-called evangelical church in the United States. So let's call ourselves to purity, and let's also be grateful. I'm not saying we shouldn't sharpen the church around us, just saying that we should also give God credit for the mighty work he has done through this time of freedom and peace in parts of the world. But whether in peace or in persecution, God is sovereign, and he is multiplying Christ's church according to his will and for his glory. Let's close by reviewing some key points of contact with us that we should be applying. Number one, Christians behave differently. You should be asking yourself, if I've been changed, can others tell? Christians behave differently because we've been taken from death to life. We love new things because God has loved us. We love others more than we love ourselves. If you aren't finding a change in your life, you should be asking yourself what you're focusing on. Do I love God and his church more than I love the world? Do I love others more than I love myself? Shouldn't there be evidence of change? Shouldn't evidence of genuine saving faith be obedience to Christ? Not perfect, but making progress. 1 Timothy 4.15. Let them see your progress. Not immediately mature, but clearly growing. The Apostle Paul will say about himself, let the mature think this way. I haven't attained it yet, but I'm straining toward the coal. Not completely sin-free, but giving evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not automatically the sharpest tool, but desiring to use whatever gifting the Spirit has given. Christians behave differently. Secondly, we are one in Christ. These next two are kind of connected, but we are one in Christ. Opposition to one believer is opposition to Christ, is opposition to all of us, because we are one. There is a unity and strength in Christ's people that should give us comfort and courage. And now three, Christians look out for one another and work together to proclaim Christ. Every team needs Saul's and Barnabas's. Every team member should aspire to emulate their qualities. Well, first, we do need Saul's and Barnabas's. 
Who are the bold proclaimers? Some will be gifted uniquely as teachers and evangelists. Who are the merciful peacemakers? There are people among us who are uniquely gifted in mercy and encouragement, uniquely gifted in evangelism and teaching. But being ambassadors for Christ is the privilege and responsibility we all share as believers. Even as we are all commanded to strive for peace and to pray for peace. I listed in here a bunch of passages for you to look at about believers pursuing peace. You want to scratch these down if you're a, a note taker. Matthew 5, 9, James 3, 16 to 18, Romans 12, 17 to 19, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. All of those are about us striving for, for peace, praying for peace. Finally, one chief application that we can close with is always to know God and worship him. So what do we learn about God here? God is at work to make himself known. And he's therefore working on behalf of and through Christ's church. What does that mean for us? If God is about, if he's making himself known and he is working on behalf of his church and he is working through his church, what does that mean for us? We trust God's will to grow us and use us. Whether we experience peace or persecution, whether we testify to Christ in martyrdom or whether God protects and provides escape, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We are his, him we proclaim. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that all of this is from you and for you. You are the God who is making a people for your own possession because you created all things for your glory and yet the pinnacle of your creation was mankind, uh, male and female, you created us in your own image so that we would love you and glorify you and worship you and God, we have rebelled. We want to make gods of ourselves, and we want to go our own way. And in, in every way, in every corner of our heart, we reveal a rebellious, idolatrous love for ourselves and for other things and not you. And because we are incapable of restoring ourselves to you, a perfectly holy God, you have seen fit to be both just and the one who makes us righteous. Thank you that Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Thank you that he proved himself to be Messiah and Lord God. Thank you that he willingly died on the cross to atone for our sin. Thank you that he rose again to conquer sin and death. Thank you that he, he proved that he was resurrected by many appearances to his followers. And thank you that he has ascended on high, mediating on behalf of his people. Thank you that he is ruling in the 
the place that he deserves of authority and power. We thank you, God, that you are working on behalf of your church and through your church, and we, we do pray, God, that we will be a part of what you are doing to, to grow your church, to bring more people into your possession. God, we do pray that you will help us to be a part of being a pure church so that we will be the bride that Jesus is returning to collect. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Amen.